morning. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 19:23 through 40. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 795 in your worship Bible. Please read along as I please follow as I read along. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go into the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For this assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when we recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. This is the word of God. Thank you, bud. Appreciate you doing that for us today. You know, one of the things that we see in a very pronounced way in this text, which uh, Bud just read for you, is that is this pronounced cultural influence of the gospel. The gospel changed the culture. The gospel changed the way people lived. The preaching of the gospel that day didn't just save souls. It changed 
the whole way people related to one another. It changed the way people lived, and so the culture itself began to change. And so that's what got people so upset, because the world, the world, world as they knew it was changing because of the way these Christians were living. Here's what had happened. The apostle Paul had, and his companions had been in Ephesus for about two years. In fact, this is the longest time the apostle Paul stayed at any place, uh, uh, two years, two and a half years that he was there. And they were there for a long time, and, 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 and there was a tremendous, um, tremendous outpouring of the blessing of God on, on, their, on their ministry. During that time, as we saw last week, if you were here with us, they saw the gospel at work in, whole, in explosive healing, transforming power. In the earlier verses, and I, I printed some of these in the back of your message notes uh, there uh, for you. In the earlier verses of this passage, we see that all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, communities of Jesus began to emerge. Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Smyrna, the seven churches of the Revelation uh, uh, apocalypse. Those churches were planted probably during this time. It was explosive in its impact. There was tremendous explosion of the blessing of God. Everywhere, the healing power of God was making sick people well, and it was, it was beautiful to see what was happening. The gospel wasn't just giving people a hope for a future beyond the grave, although, of course, it did that. It also transformed the way that they lived in their communities. That's why it speaks about that in the first verse that, that Bud read for, read for you, talking about the way. This wasn't just a belief system. Twice it was called the way. And so we see in the verses just before this, in fact, this is probably what led to the, the, the confrontation which had occurred, is that Ephesus, Ephesus had been a place with strong devotion to magical arts. It was a, 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 a big place for the dark arts and the magical arts. And so so many people had come to Christ that they stopped worshiping at the temple of Artemis, and they began to take their books of magic spells, and they, they burned them in a great celebration as they, as they said, we're no longer going to follow the magic ways of our culture. We're going to start to follow Jesus. What we see here is that they were experiencing resurrection part two. We know that Jesus rose from the dead, and that inaugurated the new coming. Uh, new king, the kingdom of God, and that someday Jesus will return and remake this world which will consummate the kingdom of God, but we're in that in-between period time when we're called to implement the achievement of the cross as best we can with the power of the Holy Spirit here in this culture, living the Jesus way in the midst of a culture of death, being people of life. In a culture where people take advantage of one another, becoming serving people, just like Jesus was. We're living in the light of their resurrection. That's what I'm calling this time period as we continue our study through the book of Acts, Resurrection Part 2. It's a subset of our larger series, which we've been doing for nearly a year now, called Ecclesia Unleashed, a study in the book of Acts. Yeah, the gospel was changing the culture. In fact, it had been so successful that there was, in this text, a cultural backlash. A cultural backlash. People were upset about the economic changes that were happening in their culture. You see, in the early church, the gospel had a transforming effect on the culture. I was just talking with Bart a little bit ago before the service, Bart, and you're talking about the way the culture has changed in the last 50 years or so. Yes, the culture has changed. At one point, uh, Christianity was respected and looked up to and, and a cultural trendsetter. Now, well, let's just say that's not the case, is it? 
It's not the case. Yeah, in the primitive church, however, that was the case. It was still looked down upon, but somehow people's lives were changed and the culture began to change around them. You see, Christianity in that day didn't just prepare believers for a, bliss, a blissful post-mortem future with God, but it also prepared them to live an entirely new kind of life in the midst of their present-day culture. As a result, the idols of their day were dismantled, <laughs> and the culture was beginning to be transformed. That's why Demetrius called a meeting of the, uh, the, the, the art, art director's guild and said, our artifacts, no one's buying our artifacts. We're having an economic crisis, and the problem is all those followers of the way. Yeah, the idols of their day were dis being dismantled, and the culture was being transformed. And indeed, in the generations to come, Ephesus became the leading church of the New Testament period. The central power of the church at first was in Jerusalem. We saw it move towards Antioch. And then as the New Testament closes, the strongest Christian communities are, are, are developed out, out of that community of Ephesus. They literally changed that culture. I wonder, is it possible for that to happen today? How many of you agree with me that our culture could use a little changing? Yeah. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. How will it happen? Well, I believe it will happen if we follow the example found in this passage, starting with last week and continuing through this week, which Bud read for you today. It will happen if we are willing, number one, to confront our cultural idols, Number two, to live the Jesus way. And number three, to proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, let's take a look, especially at this first one, because this is the new part. We haven't talked about this much, but it's been a theme throughout the book of Acts that as the apostle Paul went around planting communities of followers of Jesus, he began to confront the idols that are prevalent in their world. The pagan world, as you no doubt know, was filled with idols. And the Apostle Paul consistently preached against those idols. As he proclaimed the gospel, he proclaimed it in opposition to the idols of the day. Often we want to proclaim the gospel, we, want to, we don't want to proclaim it against the idols of our day. But the Apostle Paul did that. And that's how the culture was changed. Because they began to understand that following Jesus meant living differently, following a new master. As I mentioned, the Apostle Paul consistently preached against the idols of the day. And, the, and Demetrius himself gave a good summation of what their church was all about in the 26th verse. Did you notice it as, as Bud read it? Demetrius, who was the leader of the local guild, probably, Artisan's Guild, he said, and you hear, excuse me, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. He's summarizing Paul's message in saying that man-made, another version says it this way, man-made gods are no gods at all. And this was a consistent Jewish message which had gone around already, but now Paul comes as a Jew who's a follower of Jesus who says man-made gods are no gods at all. And of course, that meant that people, if they're going to follow Jesus, they had to stop following other gods. It's a controversial message, but it's consistent from the Apostle Paul. 
We saw it also a few a while ago when we were following uh, Paul when he was in Athens. Here he is in Ephesus, but he was in Athens in Acts chapter 17. He was there walking around this great cultural intellectual city and seeing these idols everywhere. And it says his essentially that his, his stomach turned at what he saw, and he began to speak about it. And so he said this when in that sermon in the 17th chapter, the 24th verse, there on Mars Hill, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives every, himself everyone, life and breath and everything else. Gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And he did it earlier in the 14th chapter of Acts consistently. When, they come, when he goes into the town of Lystra and Derby, they begin to worship him. And they say in verse 15, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human just like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things. He means those idols to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Three examples all the way up until now in the book of Acts that let us know that part of the message of the Christian church wasn't just proclaiming Jesus, but proclaiming Jesus in opposition to the idols of their day. We saw it in Lystra. We saw it in Athens. We see it here in Ephesus. It was so much a part of their message that even their opponents knew what they stood for. That's why Demetrius says he's saying that gods made by human hands are not even gods at all. Clearly, the apostle Paul made it his mission to apply the gospel directly to the idols of the local culture. That's what we need to see. The gospel always is applied to the idols of our local culture. He did it so consistently that even those outside the church knew of its importance. Now, the question is this. What are the idols in our culture? And what does the gospel have to say about those idols. Do you see where I'm going? Now, of course, we don't have any idols, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Idolatry is the essential human condition. You cannot not worship. Did you know that? You cannot not worship. Everyone worships something. Everyone bows down before something. The question is, to whom or to what do you bow down? And how do you find what that is? See, this is what the gospel's about, is saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is the God of the universe who gave himself for us, died for us to bring us back to him as we place our faith in him and bow down before him. Our past is forgiven. Our future is secure. Our present makes sense. And we're living in the light of that resurrection power with his Holy Spirit in us. He is the God of the universe and he's the Lord of our lives. That's the message as we respond in faith to him. But if that's the truth, then nothing else can sit in that spot. You know the Ten Commandments, don't you? What's the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. Is that because God is vain and He just likes to be worshipped or whatever? No, it's because He is the source of all life. It's like the, uh, uh, the air pack that you wear when you go underwater saying, you shall breathe nothing else but me. <laughs> You take it out, I don't want to. Well, what happens? You die. You drink water, and you're not made to drink water, right? Is that what you would drink? Salt water, whatever it would be. 
if you're diving under the ocean. No, when God says you have no other gods but me, He's simply telling the truth that His Spirit is what breathes life into us, and we need to respond in faith to Him. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. It's the idols that we make that get in our way. And the second commandment's like to it, right? The second commandment, you shall not make a graven image. What does that mean? You shall not worship something you can make. Yeah? You shall not worship something that you can make or something that has been made. For God is the king and the maker of all the earth. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of praise, right? That's what we're trying to remember, that God is the one who creates the earth. And so we sing praises to him. So much of your Christian life is not just about responding in faith to the gospel, but seeing how does that apply to the idols that tend to want to set up residence in my life? How does that relate to the idols in my life. What is the essence of idol worship? The essence of idol worship is this. It is to make anything other than God central to your life. Anything other than God indispensable to your life. An idol is anything so central to your life that your life seems meaningless without it. You know, some, often idols are not bad things. They're good things that have been changed into ultimate things. When you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol to you. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a destroying thing. Do we have idols? Well, of course we do. Every culture, every civilization, every human being has idols. You cannot not worship. The question is not will I worship, but whom or what will I worship? Paul saw the idols of his day. He confronted them. He applied the gospel to them. And as a result, when people became followers of Jesus, the economic and social structures of the community began to be changed. Well, what are the kinds of idols that we need to think about? I'm I'm spending most of my time on this point because it's sort of foundational to what I'm trying to do today because we haven't talked about it so much. Well, there's so many idols (laughs) They're all over, are all over, but I just thought of a few that I think are really important. There are a variety of what we call personal idols, personal idols. Maybe foremost among them, money and success. Yeah, I think of this in the context of their culture. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the moon, and the goddess of the hunt, and so there's a sexual component to that. We'll get to that. But there also was a financial component to that, I mean, the moon and the hunt and fertility, all of these had to do with the wealth. And so the art goddess Artemis became a goddess in their culture of business and wealth. And a great temple was built there in Ephesus. One column of it still stands today. You can go see it outside of, of Ephesus. It's been torn down many times. It was one, have you ever heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world? Have you ever heard of that? You've heard of the hanging gardens, which no one knows if or where they ever existed? You know The temple of Artemis at Ephesus was one of those seven wonders. Seven wonders of the ancient world. 
It was 225 feet wide and 450 feet long. Think of the size of a football field, but even larger. Had columns all around it. It was a massive structure and a great tourist attraction. So people would come and to see the, the seven wonders of the ancient world really were kind of like a tour guide for people who are traveling. Let's go see the seven wonders. And one of them was there in Ephesus. Great financial wealth came into that town. And this is what was going on with Demetrius. Did he care as much about Artemis as he did about his career? <laughs> no. He was afraid he'd lose money. And, and one of the things that really controls our lives is money and success. Money is an idol in our day, as you, of course, know. We call it our net worth. Have you ever thought about what an insidious phrase that is? What's our net worth? Well, your net worth is this. I will tell you. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. That's how worthy and valuable you are. That's your net worth. But when we say the net worth, we mean something altogether different, don't we? We look to money to provide protection for us against sickness and any kind of eventuality. We expect money to provide security for us against the future. We expect money to provide happiness for us. So much of our lives revolve around money. Now, is money a bad thing? No. But if it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes destructive for us. And, you know, the materialism of our… I don't need to tell you this. You know it, right? It's so much a part of the fabric of our lives. Money has a death grip on our culture. We sacrifice our health to it. We sacrifice our children to it. How many families have moved their children out of perfectly safe and healthy, good environments into another environment purely because of the amount of money they were going to make somewhere else? I'm not saying it's always wrong to do that, but do you see? That's a form of, of child sacrifice that sometimes happens. How many kids have suffered because their parents were just so into things? Yeah, yeah. Money is one of the idols. The gospel needs to speak to that. Jesus said himself, you cannot serve both God and money. That's one reason why giving is such an important part of the Christian life, because we want to set ourselves free from the power of that money by using it in a way that it's not typically used, which is to give it away, not to use it to get something, you see? We need to figure out how to see the gospel apply so that money just is money and doesn't have ultimate meaning for our lives. That's one of the idols. I mean, there's so many. I just, I'm just thinking of a few that I thought of as I thought about all of this. Number, uh, a second idol that's related to this temple as well would be the idol of love and sex. The idol of love and sex. Now, these are good things, of course, but they must not become ultimate things. God has created us with the desire for intimacy and for relationship, but the quest for romance can lead many people to sacrifice their values in order to achieve it. They bow before that goal. They give up things that really matter to them, that really matter more to them because they have to bow before that all because they need that relationship. They need that feeling. And in truth, the sexual relationship itself may be the most euphoric and transcendent experience that humans can achieve. It's an out-of-body experience. It's, and, and no wonder it becomes so addictive. You know, we feel so transcendent in the midst of that. That's why it should be protected, not because it is bad, but because it is so good. We protect it. But left to run its own course, it quickly becomes idolatrous. We will do literally anything to get more of it, whether we seek simply the romance of a relationship 
or the euphoria of a sexual high. So we say things like, well, he's not a Christian, but he is a good man, <laughs> right? He's better than a lot of Christians I've known. We bow before that idol of relationship. I know they say we ought to get married, but, you know, we plan to someday. Now, what difference does it make what I do in my private life as long as I'm not hurting anyone? All these things are ways of bowing down, and you could give a whole bunch of other examples of that. No need to stay at this point. We know where these things are. Yeah, the gospel has to apply to these idols in our culture. Another idol that we often have, we have think that we can bow before, this happens a lot in, in, in Christian homes with people. We can idolize our family and our children. We can idolize our family and our children. We can idolize our, our kids especially. If my kids are happy, or if my marriage is strong, then I'm okay. If my kids are Christians, if my kids are successful, if my kids love me, then I'm okay. You see, idols become idols when good things become ultimate things. And how many moms and dads have ruined their children by their excessive needy devotion to their kids. They need so much from their kids. Yeah, we've got to surrender our children to the Lord as well. Surrender our sexuality to the Lord as well. Surrender our relationships to the Lord as well. Surrender our, 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 our material goods and the ability to acquire them and our jobs and our careers to the Lord. It is that relationship with God that is the central hub around which, out of which everything else flows. Put anything else in the center and everything gets out of balance. You shall have no other gods before me. Yeah. You know, and we can even make religious idols. Oh, there's so many Religious idols. You know, money worshipers think they're just hardworking, and child worshipers think they just love their kids. But there are w religious idols that we can develop that we think we're just devoted to God. It's possible to use religion and religious activities as a leverage to sort of curry God's favor, in which we're, case we're trusting in ourselves rather than God. An idol is something good that I look to bring me salvation instead of God, and so we have religious ideas. We say, well, all religions are the same. <laughs> or just do your best, or, you know, there's just lots of religious idols. You know, we can become addicted to our own view of the truth, perhaps. We become more committed to our ideas about God than we are to God Himself. That was the case of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. We're not saved by the rightness of our beliefs. We're saved by the grace of God as, re as revealed in Jesus Christ and by the resurrection from the dead. We can have religious idols, good moral people thinking that somehow they're cashing chips in towards their own salvation, and yet that's not the gospel at all. We need to let that go. And, of course, there are cultural, I mean, there's so many cultural idols. Human reason, the enlightenment, human reason became ultimate, and we thought we could fix everything in human reason. And uh, anyway, I could go on. There's so many idols that we just need to see so that these gods are no gods at all. Many of them have their place. Even our political ideology can become an idol to us. Western individualism can become an idol to us. We need to, we need to be able to, we need to be able to see those, uh, those, those, those idols to confront our cultural idols. That's part of the gospel, and part of our Christian life is to learn how to apply the gospel to those idols. Well, there's two other points I want to make real quickly before we close. And one is we need to, secondly, live the Jesus way. There's a phrase in here that's used a couple of times that says, they followed 
after the way. They followed after the way. You see, the people, of his, the people who are followers of Jesus began to live by the principles of Jesus Christ alone as Lord, and it began to change the way they looked at the world around them. They were followers of the way. They didn't just have religious ideas, and they didn't just have a conviction about the future. Their conviction led them to live in a particular kind of way, and they were called the way. It says it in verse 9 and, uh, and, 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 and again in verse 21, they were followers of the way. See, the Christian life is a way of living, of seeking to respond to the, uh, to the gospel and apply it to my life and live in a way that makes my life different than others around me. Live the Jesus way. And then finally, proclaim the kingdom of God. In verses 8 to 10 of this passage, earlier than what we looked at today, it says, that, it says this, that the Apostle Paul was there in the, kingdom, uh, in the synagogue for about three months, speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This continued for two years so that all residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This great message about Jesus that I've been you know, sort of alluding to as we've gone through this whole talk today is a story about Jesus who came to be one of us, who came to announce the kingdom of God, who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin, was raised up from the dead. And because of that, we can say no to the idols of our culture and can begin to live in accordance with the values of the kingdom of God. We can start to live the Jesus way, and we can be people who proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, when the apostle Paul heard what was going on in the passage that, that Bud read for you, he wanted to go into the theater. He wanted to say some things, but the people stopped him from doing that because he, he would risk his life if he opposed their idols. But he was saved that day. They protected him. But you know, there's another time when Jesus brought before an angry crowd and he wasn't saved. Jesus went before an angry crowd, and he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. He faced an angry crowd, and he laid down his life to triumph, as Colossians tells us, over the idols of our culture through his cross. He gave his life under the weight of human uh, rebellion. So we see that this message about the kingdom of God is one which affirms Jesus Christ who gave His life for us. And we need to respond to that and then seek to learn what it means to live in the light of the kingdom of God. How do I pull my heart away from these idols? That's such a hard question, isn't it? How do I pull my heart from these idols? What I need to do is to be captured by a new affection. I need to be enthralled with the picture of a God who loved me that much, that he would give his life for me. I need to see what Jesus has done. I need to know what he's done. I need to feel what he's done. I need to taste what he's done. Several of you have mentioned to me recently about how powerful and meaningful it was for you a few weeks ago when we laid our sins on that cross and saw it, then raised up the following Sunday with butterflies on it as a reminder of the new life which is ours in Christ. And our lives are filled with a sense of thankfulness and gratefulness and love and a gratitude for what Jesus has done so that then we don't need to be captured by other affections because we've been seized by the power of a greater affection. The way to stop worshiping money or sex or relationships or all these other things 
is not simply say, I won't do it, I won't do it, I won't do it. You know how bad that works, right? You need to be seized by a greater affection. The Bible says, love not, the, 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We, if we want to stop loving the world so much, the way we'll do it is learning to love the God who created this world. To be seized by that affection so that it captivates our lives, it fills our deepest needs to be responding to that and then not needing the false uh, hopes that are given to us out of all these things which are bound to let us down and cannot forgive us when, they, when we fail them. And we do. But Jesus, who gave his life for you, has already forgiven you so we can have forgiveness and hope and purpose today. Let's respond in faith to that message. Shall we pray as we close? Dear Jesus, thank you for the fact that the gospel isn't just about tomorrow. It's also about today. It reminds us that you've brought new life into this world at the cost of your own son's life who went through death into resurrection so that we could live a new life. We don't have to bow down towards the idols of this day, but we can bow down towards the one who made us and loved us and gave himself for us so that we can find our net worth in him. Father, we want to worship you, not the things of our culture. Set us free. The truth shall set us free. Helps to respond in faith to that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.